Turn with me to John, the 16th chapter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 16. Just a note about the sermon title. The sermon title is Bearing Fruit in a Field of Weeds. Are you aware of the fact that God wants us to bear fruit in a field of weeds? Now, you would not do that with your garden. Unless there was just nothing else you could do and you had to allow the weeds to grow. Because it just isn't the right conditions for a garden. We want the soil to be cultivated. We want the soil to be properly prepared. We want the vegetables and the things in our garden to grow unhindered. We don't want weeds to choke it out. We don't want weeds to take nutrients from the ground that should go to the vegetables. But today and next week, we're going to focus on the fact that God wants all of us to bear fruit. I think problem, one of the problems is we're living in a day and age when we're afraid we're afraid to do what God wants us to do. Uh, we're leery about it. Like in the book of Proverbs, when the Lord, said, when the Lord says uh, through Solomon, you know, there's some out there who won't go out because they're afraid that the, it's a little too windy. Or there's some who won't plant their garden because they're afraid that, of the elements. Um, we need to understand that in this day and age in which we live, we don't have the privilege of bearing fruit in a cultivated field. If the field is the world, it is full of weeds. And so that's uh, this week and next week, and I'm introducing that subject to you. And you're going to say, well, why are you on John chapter 16? Because the title of today's sermon is, It is to our advantage that Jesus returned to heaven after his crucifixion and his resurrection. It is to our advantage. Now, the reason why I'm doing this in 16 today, before I go back to 15, is because you and I need to understand that the context of John chapter 15 is in the context of John chapter 16, 17, and 14, and 13. That's one big section of scripture that happens all in one night. And the very first focus that we have is not bearing fruit in a field of weeds, but the very first approach that we have here, the very first focus is on what we're going to deal with today. And so let's quickly go there. Take your Bible, go to John chapter 16. We're going to look at verse 7. And the Bible says that Jesus says, I tell you the truth. When did Jesus not ever tell us the truth? He always has told us the truth. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, you and I know that this one night where we have chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 
is one where the disciples are troubled in their hearts. We know it's full of sorrow. We know it's full of apprehension. We know the disciples are a little concerned about what to do because Jesus has told them on several occasions, I'm leaving you for a while. Now, I don't know, I don't think that the disciples really understood that. If you have John open, go back to John chapter 7 for just a second. And I want you to notice that here in a passage of scripture that happened a a short while before uh, this passage, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, that Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication And people are trying to figure out where he came from. And so in John chapter 7, verse 25 and following, the Bible tells us that there were some, many people who said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have, oh, I'm I'm, I'm an eight. I knew that wasn't right. I thought, wow, where? I can't preach on that. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I want you to look at chapter 7 now, verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they shall seek to, they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know uh, indeed that this is truly the Christ? Now see, they're questioning who he is. But in order to question who he is, they need to know where he came from. And so in verse 27, they say, however, we know where this man is from. Where do you think they think he's from? Nazareth. Yeah, he was born as a little baby and he grew up in the city of the village of Nazareth. And he says, well, when Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. So this guy can't claim to be Christ. And then Jesus cried out and said to him when they were teaching in the temple, you both know me and you know where I am from. You think I'm from Nazareth and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Who sent Jesus? God sent Jesus. All right. Therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. The hour is in the passage that we're talking about. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. I don't know if any of you have traced those three words in the Bible or four words a little while longer when it comes to Jesus at the end of his ministry here. But this phrase shows up several times. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer and then I go to him who sent me. Where is Jesus going? Heaven. Do they know that? Oh, no, they're so clueless, it is pitiful. It is pathetic. What do they say? What do they say among themselves in verse 35? Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? 
Because he had said, you will seek me and you won't find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Where is he going to go where we cannot find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks? Where is he headed off? Somewhere here in the Roman Empire. Is he going to go to the dispersion? Is, that the, is he going to go talk to people who have been scattered across the face of the earth because uh, they have been... Uh, they have historically been run out of the country of Israel. Is that where he's going to go? Is he going to, and, and you just imagine the conversation. You know, well, maybe he's going to go up to Bethsaida. Maybe he's going to go over to Perea. Those are dispersion people over there. Maybe he's going to go down to Egypt. Maybe he's going to go here. Maybe he's going to go. They don't have any idea what he's talking about. They're so clueless, it's pathetic. I just, the sad part is that a lot of us today will read scriptures like this and, and we're clueless too. We're clueless too. Uh, there, I, I don't know how, to, I, don't, I don't even know how to say this, but I'll bet if I ask, uh, uh, if I have one person in a hundred or one person even a thousand who can adequately describe who Christ is and what his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit is based on the book of John, I'll bet many of us will just scratch our heads and say, I just can't figure it out. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. It kind of reminds me of the situation where a teacher, a third grade teacher, said to her class, we're going to, we're going to learn the capital cities. Of all 50 states, we're going to learn the capitals of all 50 states. And so a boy in the class heard that. We're going to learn the capitals of all 50 states. And so he raised his hand and told his teacher that he already knew all the state capitals. The teacher was impressed with the lad's confidence, but thought she would confirm his claim. So she asked the young man, okay, then if, if you know the, the capitals of all the states, what is the capital of Wisconsin? And the boy answered and said, that's an easy one. It's W. <laughs> I know it's humorous. It is. But that's sometimes how superficial we are in our understanding of Scripture. And I'm hoping that in the next few minutes before we're done here, that you will at least turn, if, if you're in that position, that you'll, be, you'll, you'll turn the corner a little bit and you'll say, Wow. There is a lot more to learn about Jesus than I ever, ever knew about him in the book of John. So let's keep moving, all right? What I want to do is I want to uh, uh, go to a couple of other quick passages of Scripture, and then we'll move quickly through this. You're in John 7. To turn your pages over to John chapter 12. Because now John is uh, now Jesus is not in Jerusalem during the Feast of Dedication, but now it's the Feast of the Passover, and he and his disciples have come to the city of Jerusalem, and they're spending the night before um, um, before the triumphal entry in the city of Jerusalem with uh, with Mary and Martha at their house at Bethany, and then on John the on John chapter twelve. They make their, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. So all day long now, he is talking to people and he's sharing the truth of God's word. And the Bible says in chapter 12, verse 27, that he himself needs to predict his death 
on the cross. And so he says in verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And it was such a dramatic prayer in the front of a lot of people that a voice came out of heaven from the Father himself. And what did he say? Everybody together. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. There the, therefore the people who stood by and heard it said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. But they're clueless, of course. They don't understand. Just as God uh, uh, introduced us to Jesus at the baptism, and you had that, that, uh, that uh, voice from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Here God is, is, is voicing uh, from heaven that he's going to glorify the son and the father. Now, um, I, want you to, I want you to jump down to verse 35 now of this very same passage of scripture because here's Jesus, he's talking to people all day long in, uh, in, the, um, in the city of Jerusalem and, uh, or until he leaves the city of Jerusalem and goes home for the evening to where he is spending the night. And in verse 35, Jesus said to the crowd, he said to them, this would include a lot of different people, he said, a little while longer and the light is with you. A little while longer and the light is with you. Who is the light? Jesus. And he's going to be there a little while longer. Why is it just a little while longer? Where, what's going to happen? Where's he going to go? He's going to go back to the Father in heaven. And you'll say, well, Gary, isn't this, this is pretty primary stuff, isn't it? No, not really. When you think about it, I want you to follow through this thinking. Go to chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now Jesus and his disciples are at the Lord's Supper. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. But here's the introduction that we have to the Lord's Supper in John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, what's his hour referred to? The hour in which he is going to what? Die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's the hour, and it's coming. It's almost there. I, I get a chuckle. How many times does Jesus predict his death in the Gospels? Just this once that we referred to? No, no, no. He does it many times. I, I get a chuckle at people who say, well, the Bible the, the Bible's all about Jesus, a very good person who who really helped a lot of people and was concerned about social injustice and, and uh, he was here to make life better and be a good example for us and he was a great teacher and all of that. And uh, well, how about his death on the cross? How important was that? Oh, well, that's just the peripheral issue. It's the central issue. So when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose up and washed the disciples' feet. So jump now into chapter 14. See how fast we're going? Jump into chapter 14, 
And in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, we have this very famous passage of Scripture, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in... Let's all say this. Let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. The same Jesus who left is coming back again to receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we may be also. Verse 3 says, I go, and I will come again. When is he coming again? When he says that, when is he, when is he coming again? Uh, when does, what does that refer to? The second coming of Christ, right? Sure. It refers to the second coming of Christ. Okay, now, now that you've done that, I, I want you to notice a couple of things here. When I, said, when, when I said in John chapter 16, when Jesus said in John, excuse me, when Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away, I want you to notice the first reason right here in John chapter 14, verse 3. I go to prepare a place for you. The only reason we're going to have places, the only, places, the only reason we're going to have rooms and mansions and places to stay and and houses to live in is because Jesus is preparing them for us. Right? Yeah. I, I personally believe, since the Bible says that God is going to join heaven and earth, that he's bringing all that real estate down and combining it with earth when the Bible says he's coming back and we're going to be living on this earth in a new heaven and a new earth condition. It's fascinating to think about. I can't give you all the answers. God doesn't give us the details. He's the architect of what the new earth is going to be like. He's the architect of what heaven is like. He's the architect of what, uh, what heaven is going to be like when he brings it down to earth and combines the two. I can't figure it out. He's too smart for me. And there's no architect on the face of the earth who can figure it out. But that's what he says. So that's the first thing. That's the first thing. So I want you to know that. Now I want you to jump to chapter uh, 14, verse 12, for the second reason why it is advantageous to us or to our advantage for Jesus to have left. Number 12, verse 12 says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I go to my Father. Now, this is just from a human, fallible thought. Keep that in mind when I say this to you. A human, fallible thought. If Jesus had not returned to heaven, if his physical presence were still on this earth, I wonder sometimes whether we would feel we had limited access to him. After all, I don't think he's going to live in Wooddale, Pittsburgh, New York, the Bible says the capital of the new heaven and the new earth, or the capital of the millennial, the millennium is going to be Jerusalem. And you see what I'm saying? His physical presence would be limited. Now that's just a human thought. Keep in mind you fit that into the category of all these people trying to figure out where he's from. But you see, the point that I, I'm building up to a point that we need to make right here in the very next passage of Scripture. And that is, I want you to go to John chapter 14. You're still in John chapter 14. And I want you to look at verses 19 and following. 
a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. Why won't the world see Jesus any longer? Because he has, been, he has returned to the Father. His physical presence is no longer here on this earth. He is where, what does the Bible say 23 times, where does the Bible say Jesus is right now? He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he's interceding for us, and obviously there are other things that the Bible attributes to him there. Okay, so he says, listen, he says, A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, a rather human thought, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And here's Jesus' answer. If you have your Bible, if you have a New King James Version, you read this word for word with us, okay? The verse 23 is one of the most encouraging verses in the entire Bible. In the entire Bible, okay? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And what? We will come to him and make our home with him. That's why we freely talk about Jesus in our hearts. Say, that's why we freely talk about this spiritual presence of Jesus is everywhere, because Jesus is God. See what I'm saying? But Jesus clearly says, my father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. So, how does Jesus manifest himself to us today? I mean, he does it spiritually, does he not? Because his physical presence, he hasn't returned to this earth yet. He's going to return to this earth. But his spiritual presence is within us. And the Bible says not only is the spiritual presence of the Son within us, but the spiritual presence of the Father is within us as well. And number three, the spiritual presence of the what? Ah, 16.7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you, and when he comes, these things are going to happen. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? He's the helper, right? First reference to the Holy Spirit in these passages in verse, is in chapter 14, 14, verse 16. I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Who is this helper? He is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you. And then when Jesus returned to, the, returned to heaven to the Father on the day of Pentecost, the Bible gives us a dramatic evidence that not only does he dwell with us, but he will be in us as well. So I'm not going to leave you orphans. 
I'm going to come to you. Guess what? The Father is going to live in your heart. The Son is going to live in your heart. The Holy Spirit is going to live in your heart. Now, put any enemy you can think of against those three. See what you can do with that. See what you can do with that. Now, I just want to briefly, we have, we have about six or seven minutes here, but what I want you to see here in verse seven is when Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. He has already sent the helper to us. And this applies to us as well as it did to the disciples 2,000 years later. And the Bible says that when he has come, he will what? what will the, what's the one, one, first thing that the Holy Spirit's going to do? He's going to convict the world of sin. And you and I look around at the world today and we say, wow, it doesn't look like there's a lot of conviction of sin. But the Bible says that's the work of the Holy Spirit, to convict the world of sin. Uh, why? Uh, and of righteousness? Well, that's number two. And what's the third one? And of judgment. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, I want to say something to you before. Just, just think, of, think of the word conviction for just a second. I can convict you of something if I am the law and you have disobeyed the law, right? And the Holy Spirit certainly is doing that. But don't think, think also that the word conviction is not only some objective situation, but it's subjective as well. I not only can be convicted of doing the wrong thing, but I need to have a conviction in my heart where I've accepted that truth and I understand that I am guilty. Right? I have, those two things have to happen. And you and I need to understand that we need to pray in this day and age that the Holy Spirit will not only convict the world of sin, we, we faithfully share the gospel, but we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will, will convict the heart. So inside the, our, our hearts, we acknowledge the fact because we live in a day and age when we're ignoring and we're, uh, we're brushing off and we're just suppressing everything that we don't like because it, we don't think it applies to us or it's too uncomfortable or whatever. And so there's two ways to look at conviction. So just keep that in mind. But what's the second thing the Bible says? He convicts the world of righteousness and he convicts the world of Judgment. Now, first of all, of sin, because they do not believe in me. Because the world does not believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit is going to have to convict the world of sin. That's a pretty serious issue. Pretty serious issue. Now, of righteousness, now, he says, because I go to my Father, and you don't see me any longer for a period of time, I have to convict the world of righteousness. What on earth does he mean by that? I have to convict the world of righteousness. Well, put the two together, sin and righteousness. Which is worse, sin or your self-righteousness? And I added the word self to righteousness because I think it applies. How is your sin and your personal righteousness alike? They will both condemn you to hell. Your sin... And your self-righteousness will both condemn you to hell. So it's important that the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. 
They put Jesus to death and said, he's not a righteous person, but he is. He was when he was here, and he is the most righteous of beings that you and I will ever know, because he's God. See the, see the point? Now, I don't want to get too theological as far as this is concerned, because I want to finish up here, and I want you to look at the third thing. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, of sin because they don't believe in me, of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more. My work is complete. I have died on the cross at that point. I have suffered the penalty for sin. I am offering salvation to whoever will come. Righteousness is in Christ, not in a man, not in us. And number three, of judgment. And what's the reason that he's going to convict the world of judgment? Because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, I know, we're scared to death of the devil. When we see what he's doing, it just, it just we, we kind of cringe a little bit. We try, to, we try to be careful about it. We're not like Billy Sunday, who was a very famous evangelist, who he would, he would stand up and he would preach the gospel and he'd pound, on the, he'd pound on, the, on the floor and he would say, come on up, devil, come up and get, what you're, what, uh, what you're coming, uh, get what's coming to you. We're not like that. We're not like that because we see the devil holding a lot of power over the hearts and minds of people in this world in which we live. But when Jesus says what he says here, you and I need to understand that the devil already stands condemned. He already stands condemned. He's already been convicted. The problem is he won't accept the truth in his heart. He's already been convicted. If I were to read you, and I'll just mention these to you, if I were to go through the Bible and just what Jesus already said, two times Jesus has already talked about this, but let me just give you a real quick overview. Uh, Luke chapter 10, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. John chapter 12, 31, the prince of this world will be driven out. John 16, 11, the prince of this world now stands condemned. Hebrews chapter 2, 14, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. John, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Revelation 20, 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone forever and ever. That's his final abode. But he already stands condemned. And the Holy Spirit wants you and I to understand that. Now, here's my, here's my, last, here's my last point. If I were to look at the reality of what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit and what he's doing now. I could go back to a couple of highlights in scripture and I think that would be good enough. For instance, I could go back I could go, I could go to Acts chapter 2. Let me I just have three real quick scriptures and this and then we'll be done. In Acts chapter 2, I could go to Acts chapter 2 where Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and he preaches the gospel to a group of people in Jerusalem, thousands of them, by the way, in, in, in Jerusalem, who are there for the Pentecost. And the Bible says that after, Jesus, after Peter delivers his sermon and he talks about the resurrection of Christ and that Christ is right now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, 
and that he has poured out his Holy Spirit as promised. What do the people do in verse 37 of chapter 2 of Acts? Now when they heard this, they what? They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the men, of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We need a world that needs to be saying, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of what the Holy Spirit is doing, what shall we do? And of course, Peter said, repent. Receive the Lord. Repent. Receive the Lord. In Acts chapter 16, you don't have to return there because turn there because it's a very famous passage of scripture. John, uh, Paul is in the city of Philippi. He's in jail. He's singing to his heart's content with Silas. In the prison, there's a great earthquake, and the rocks uh, and, and the prison doors are kind of opened, and, and Paul and Silas can walk right out. And the, and the Philippian jailer runs in, and he says to them, he's afraid, obviously, and he's afraid. And the Bible tells us in the 16th chapter, the 30th verse, he's, uh, he, he called for a light, ran in. The jailer called, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, everybody remember what he said? He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is what's happening in a field of weeds. We'll pick up next week. This is what's happening in a field of weeds. And you and I need to understand that. So that we are encouraged by what God is doing in this world. Instead of discouraged. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would just help us to take your word and to apply it to our lives, to listen to it carefully, to understand that what you're telling us is the truth and that we are to believe it and we're to understand that we're not orphans in this world. But Father, you're here in our hearts. Jesus, you're here in our hearts. Holy Spirit, you are here in our hearts promised to be with us, to empower us, to help us. In Jesus, your name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.